the Napoleonic Wars, the First Great War, an era that saw the British Army come of age. But how much do you know about the officers at the forefront of the war? Were they all aristocratic buffoons like Henry Simerson in the Sharp series? Were most commissions and promotions paid for? What sort of training did they receive? And were battalion commanders actually younger and more dynamic than their counterparts in other armies? We are going to be busting plenty of myths today. The answers to these questions really surprised me, and I think you may be shocked. Today's guest is Steve Brown. He spent years researching regimental and battalion commanders of the Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars. His book, Fit to Command, is now out and can be purchased from Helion Books. There's a link in the description below. Also, guys, please consider signing up for my mailing list over at redcoathistory.com newsletter. When you do so, you'll receive a free ebook on the Battle of Isandwana. Anyway, back to today's interview, and I started off by asking Steve how a man became an officer in the first place. Well, assuming he wasn't another rank, but we'll get to that eventually, um, a, a young gentleman wishing to become an officer merely had to um, apply in writing to the Commander-in-Chief via the Commander-in-Chief's military secretary, uh, and, the, and the letter of, of application must contain a letter of from an eminent person, and ideally a, um, an army officer, if possible, or if not, some person who's eminent in society, recommending the young officer for a post in His Majesty's Army, um, together with the cost of the purchase of a commission, and sit back and wait. And then eventually, uh, a lot of young officers found out their destiny by referring to the Gazette. Uh, you know, your typical entry would say, young master, whomever, is hereby appointed uh, ensign in the, you know, fourth mudguards or whatever, effective date of, you know, today's date. Uh, and that's how they found out. Uh, and, off, and often they may, you know, but obviously in the days before a mobile phone, people couldn't ring them up to pre-warn them. But people who with an earlier copy of the Gazette obviously can run around and knock on the door and say, hey, congratulations. Um, so that's really how it happened. Hence, why young officers were gazetted, because that's actually how they found out what they were up, what they were, what lay in store for them. Uh, which is um, a word that even sort of remains today, even though I'm not sure that um, promotions appear in the gazette anymore. <laughs> no, well, you you alluded to it then, Steve. The purchase system. I mean, you know, mm. people who read a lot about this era will know about it, but a lot of people will be shocked to learn that British officers of the era, not all, but a large percentage, would have paid for their commission. Could you talk us through how that process worked? It wasn't unique to the British Army. There were some other European armies that also had a series of commission, and I mean, the French had a similar system in the days of the monarchy in the Bourbon era, and the Austria-Hungarian army did something similar. So it certainly wasn't unique to the British Army, but it started in 1683 by King Charles II, and it lasted until 1871. So something like 190 years, it allowed the army to tick along with its own little internal logic of how officers could progress up the table. Um, and there are a number of reasons why it was considered to be a desirable thing to have, uh, in so far as the fact that commission holders who have paid money for their rank um, have a vested interest in maintaining the status quo and not joining revolutions and plots, because if they did, they would uh, lose their money effectively. So it was a sort of collateral against abuse of authority. Uh, it also ensured that candidates who were able to purchase their rank uh, were people of means. They had a private means, because this was an era where <clears throat> to become an officer... Uh, or, or to, to operate as an officer, you really needed a private income. Uh, even in the meanest of line infantry regiments, a young officer needed about £100 a year over and above their salary to pay for all the things that had to be paid for, you know, cost of the transportation, the cost of the, their, 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 their costumes, or the uniforms, uh, the cost of the mess bills, all those sorts of things. And in the guard regiments, it was something more like £500 a year over and above your salary just to, just to um, exist. 
And just to give us a sense, Steve, in, in modern money, we're talking probably tens of thousands of uh, US dollars, right? Uh, well, this was an era that when, um, and we'll get to we get to salaries a bit later on, but a, a typical lieutenant colonel in a line regiment earned somewhere around £300 a year. A private earned £9 a year in a line infantry regiment. Um, an agricultural labourer with a scythe working on the, in the, out in the fields earned about £28 a year. In other words, three times what a private earned, just to put some sort of scale against all of that. Yeah. Um, so very, I, I, I have no idea what that works out to in US dollars, um, but there was a massive differential but a between lot. a private and, and a lieutenant colonel, I'm sure a lot more than there is today, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah, you would hope so. So so how did the logistics of this work then, Steve? Because obviously we're going to get onto the backgrounds of a lot of the officers you've researched shortly. But just for a bit of background, you know, how, how did it how did it work, the logistics of buying your commission? Uh, I'm not sure there's anybody living who fully understands how the purchase system works, but I'll uh, I'll give it my best shot. Um <clears throat> An officer could purchase the commission as a way of moving up the promotion tree um, if a purchasable commission was available to purchase, bearing in mind that money paid to purchase a step of rank didn't just disappear somewhere into the army never to be seen again and disappearing into consolidated holdings or something. It was, in fact, a retirement fund. Uh, when an officer retired and... Uh, left the service and assuming that they had purchased their ranks and they wanted to get their money back, uh, it was said that an officer uh, had sold out. What that really means is he got all his money back from all his purchases and that was his retirement fund. And that could be anything like four to five thousand pounds if he's gone the whole way to lieutenant colonel and even more if he was in the guards regiments. And that was a considerable sum of money in an era when a lieutenant colonel earned about 300 pounds a year. Um, to walk away with four and a half thousand pounds at the end of their career, even if they're only in their forties, uh, that's like more than ten years of salary. That's their that's their complete retirement fund. But there was a lot of um, instances where ranks couldn't be purchased. Uh, for example, a dead man's shoes, an officer being killed or died in action, his rank was not filled by purchase. It was offered to the next most senior officer down the down the list. Um, any senior officer who was removed the general officers list, which occurred quite a lot in 1814, because the regiments were mostly quite top heavy. Um, if a, if a, a general officer within a regiment was removed the general officers list, that his rank was filled by an officer without purchase. If a regiment was augmented, in other words, additional companies added to it or additional battalions added to it, all the new um, ranks so created could not be purchased. Um, and an officer appointed to a staff position, uh, for example, a major appointed lieutenant colonel on the staff, uh, did not have to purchase. So there's plenty of applications where purchase was not necessarily applicable. There were also a lot of abuses, particularly in the early days, and I'm talking the 1790s here, um, of officers using uh, purchase for uh, ill, not good by purchasing their way from literally the cradle to a lieutenant colonel's position in um, something like a matter of a few months. Uh, and we can perhaps talk to some of those, perhaps as we move through, and we've got a couple of slides that show, you know, how some of those abuses were allowed to happen. Um, the fact that purchase existed for nearly 200 years, uh, I said to a lot of people that it did, it did in fact work, and it was in fact way more effective than the system of seniority used in um, the Ordnance Corps, the Royal Artillery and the Royal Engineers, who, as a rule, appointed senior officers to go on campaign who were always too old and at least 10 to 15 year, years older than the inf infantry and cavalry counterparts. Um, there was no purchase system within the Royal Navy. The Royal Navy had way more officers available for employment than they, than they could actually employ, and a lot of uh, naval officers sat for years on half pay or never got employed in action at all. Um, also, the the armies of the East India Company uh, didn't use purchase. And again, they had a very old officer corps, usually much, much older than the regular army, um, because it really relied on people staggering their way up <laughs> like a civil service list, uh, waiting for all the people above them to retire. So you know, the purchase system allowed for a sort of internal mobility 
Um, and the fact that it worked for so long uh, has proven that um, it, it, it wasn't necessarily a bad thing. It might, it might stun modern sensibilities, but it, uh, it worked at the time. Yeah, um, and and the proof is in the pudding. The the army, you know, went from being uh, quite frankly on the nose in seventeen ninety three to being the absolute stars in eighteen fifteen, um, with at least as much uh, credibility as the Royal Navy, if not more. And you 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 kind of mentioned it then about dead men's shoes. This is one reason, though, why wartime allowed these sort of talented officers to come through, wasn't it? Because maybe they didn't have money, but if the guy ahead of you gets killed in action, you might get his his job without purchase. So that did allow, yeah. I'm guessing, a lot of talent to come through because people were yeah, getting killed ahead of them. Yep. Um, it's like uh, Major Peter O'Hara said, I think it was in the before the assault on uh, Ciudad Rodrigo. Um, he was a major, but he said, I, I will be a lieutenant colonel or dead meat by morning. And what was he? What happened? Uh, fortunately, he was the latter. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, I know the the your research and your most recent book has been about uh, battalion commanders, so sort of lieutenant colonels, essentially. But can you give mm -hmm. us a sense what sort of training would have would would an officer have had? You know, let's say he comes in as an ensign between then and becoming lieutenant colonel. Would there was there generally any training, or was everything on the job? Uh, well, certainly for the first, well, let's call it first 10 years of the war, and when I talk about the war, I'm talking about the Great War with France, which was considered to have existed from 1793, early 1793 till late 1815, with a 14-month a intermission between 1802 and 1803 when they were all able to go into the foyer and buy ice creams and lollies and things before they go back to action again. Um <clears throat> For the first um, sort of 10 years of the war, everything was strictly um, on-the-job training. There was nowhere a young officer to go to learn other than turning up and square bashing and being put through their paces by the adjutant and the sergeant major, along with a batch of other young officers, uh, and having to learn, A, the standing orders for the unit, which are usually written by the commanding officer, uh, and also having to learn uh, the fa infamous or famous uh, David Dundas drill manual, which ran to something like 350 pages, of all the evolutions they were expected to um, carry out or, or be capable of, of making their troops carry out. Um, and, um, yeah, day in, day out, uh, that was what they did. Um, possible exceptions to that were... Um, particularly under John Moore's tutelage at Shorncliffe with the light infantry regiments, particularly the 43rd and the 52nd. Um, he actually made his young officers um, put on packs, pick up muskets and train with the men. Um, and, and, you know, every so often he'd make them run up a big hill and back down again, you know, sort of shades of band of brothers to weed out those who weren't suitable, those who weren't fit enough um, and all that kind of stuff went on. So that was very much the sort of light infantry sort of ethos. A formal training academy didn't really exist until, um, well, really after 1800 when, uh, you know, the celebrated cavalry commander, uh, Jean Le Marchand, um, created or put forward to the Duke of York the idea for a, um, a staff college, uh, which was created in, the, in rented rooms at the rear of the Antelope Inn in High Wycombe. Um, which then later evolved into a, a senior school and a junior school, the senior school being a place to train uh, existing serving officers, usually of the rank of captain or above, um, for roughly 18 months, two years' worth of higher staff training, I guess you'd call it. And there's also a junior school designed to attract 16- and 17-year-olds put them through a effectively a staff training college which when discharged they could then straight from there to their regiments and join as ensigns straight from uh, the royal military college and obviously um somewhere along the line and i think it was about 1820 both uh, branches of the college merged and took up new residence at uh, sandhurst of course which of course is where it is to these this day the artillery had had actually had a Military Academy since, uh, I think, about 1740 at Woolwich. 
um, the Royal Royal Military Academy that and and you could not become an ordnance officer without um, passing passing out of Royal Military Academy at Woolwich. Uh, that was you passed to become a second lieutenant in the artillery. <clears throat> um, so it was kind of a it was kind of an evolving process, um, and the fruits of it were starting to become evident by about the time of Waterloo. A decent percentage of staff officers and officers in some of the leading regiments were um, effectively High Wycombe or perhaps should I say Sandhurst graduates um, starting to make a difference within the army for the first time. And of course, you know, um, Sandhurst has existed and produced uh, officers ever since. Brilliant. And it's still going strong. I believe so. And Steve, so obviously you've, you've really looked at the data, you've dived into the sort of backgrounds of these battalion commanders. What, what has been some of the most interesting things you've learned in your research? You know, what can you tell us about, you know, their backgrounds, what surprised you, that sort of thing? I think the backgrounds of the officer cadres that, that, I've, that I've looked at show some remarkably consistent elements. Um, and it shows some interesting demographic elements uh, and it shows some very, very interesting data about the backgrounds. Um, <clears throat> for example, I looked at all of the field officers in the first lifeguards um, and you would imagine the first lifeguards to be awash with uh, aristocrats. In fact, that was not the case. Yeah, first lifeguards, field officers between 1793 and 1815, there is only one aristocrat and he's not, he's the son of an earl, he's not actually an earl himself, so he's the honourable. Um, but you've got a son of a merchant, uh, you've got a couple of sons of MPs, uh, you've got a few sons of army and navy officers, and a few of them are the sons of what I would call landed proprietors or the esquire class, who really were, I think, the backbone of the army of this period. Um, you know, middling sons of landed families and when I say landed families they don't didn't have to have a castle or a manor or hundreds of acres they might have had five acres um, but they were really the the kind of the, the backbone of the army that, that sort of class and when I say middling sons of course it was the old thing that you know the eldest son was going to inherit the estate the second son went into the navy third son went into the army fourth son became a reverend <laughs> You know, it's amazing how often this is true. <laughs> and the Wellesleys were followed that followed that formula exactly, <laughs> of all people. Um, I also looked at a more typical line regiment. Uh, well, I'm not. I'm sure the Royal Fusiliers may not like themselves being called a typical line regiment, but they were the seventh foot. Um, and you've got, you know, a lot of the same kinds of things, lots and lots of sons of landed proprietors and former army officers because, you know, the sons following their dads into the army was always a popular thing. Um, there was two officers who were the sons of, um, well, actually one of them was the son of a former um, PM, um, Cavendish Bentink, and one son of an earl and one son of a baron, and then a whole bunch of outliers. You've got a son of a US loyalist, uh, a son of a Huguenot refugee, a son of a German merchant, and a former NCO who was Lieutenant Colonel in the Royal Fusiliers in this period. So it's a real mishmash. And I think overall, if you sort of put it, if you sort of analyse the data and sifted it through scientific methods, you would end up with the inevitable bell curve that you've got, you know, the high point of the curve in the middle, you've got your landed proprietors and, and middle-class sons of army officers. Down the left-hand end, you've got a, a smattering of former rankers, uh, and at the right-hand end, again, at the sort of skinny end on the right, you've got, um, you know, aristocrats or near-aristocrats. Um, but by and large, the rump of the army was a kind of middle-class, um, sons of merchants, sons of landed proprietors, sons of former army officers, um, sons of reverends were quite common, sons of doctors. You know, that, 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 was, that, was, the, that was the lifeblood of the officer class back then. Well, you know, you've mentioned uh, at least one of the uh, battalion commanders in the 7th was a former uh, sergeant. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about any characters you came across who were former rankers and do you know any of their backstories? I do. Yeah, this list that I put together that you can see on screen at the moment um, 
is, well, it's, it has two very interesting features about it. Um, uh, the first is that they all started their career as privates, including General George Morris and the Quartermaster General to the Forces. Uh, four full generals, what have we got? One, two, three, four, five lieutenant generals, three major generals, and good old Oberst Olferman of the Brunswick Contingent, who, who commanded the Brunswick well, Division, effectively, at Waterloo, um, all started their careers as privates. Uh, the second interesting feature about this is the all-at-rank Richard Sharp. <laughs> I was about to say, he was, he was clearly an underachiever. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he really should have pulled his finger out. He really wasn't making an effort there. Um, but then again, you know, he, he, how did he end up? He, he was a lieutenant colonel on the half pay of the South Essex, wasn't he, when he retired? He retired something like Normandy. that, yeah. Yeah, something, yeah. Whatever, whatever number the South Essex was, 105th, I think, or whatever it was. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, so yes, the, the, it's a way of demonstrating that um, a private could um, indeed aspire to high things if given given incredible luck in the right circumstances. And in fact, the two battalions that com that um, guarded Napoleon on Saint Helena, um, I think when Napoleon went there, he was guarded by the second battalion of the sixty sixth, which was commanded by Lieutenant Colonel Daniel Dodgen, who was an ex ranker. Uh, and they were replaced a couple of years later by the 20th foot under Lieutenant Colonel Samuel South, another ranker. Wow. Uh, which, you know, I'm sure would not have escaped Napoleon's attention that there was a couple of officers who had, um, well, at the very least, um, Lieutenant Colonel sashes in their knapsack. Perhaps not a field marshal's baton, but... Uh... <laughs> and just, I don't know if, if your research has, has been able to shine a light on this, but we, we're talking like proper uh, working class rankers. We're not talking kind of, you know, guys from rich backgrounds who maybe joined up, you know, gentlemen rankers or they were volunteers or anything like that. We're talking, or, or, or that's not clear. The, it's, some of them it's not super clear because a lot of them come from very um, obscure backgrounds. Um, I've written a lot of biographies in my other series, my web series, and which is now being turned into a book. And I've, so far, I've written about 1,800 biographies of COs or field officers. Um, and some of them are incredibly hard to pin down and find where they came from. Now, <clears throat> that is probably due to their being very humble. And even perhaps when they made the grade, they didn't really want to sort of talk about it too much. They didn't want to advertise the fact that they came from, um, you know, very, very humble folk. Um, but the, arm, the, the army gave enormous social mobility to, to officers um, who could make the grade. Uh, I think there's no better example than Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Lawrence of the 19th Foot, who was the son of a miller from Coleraine. Uh, and he had five sons who followed him into the army, uh, four of whom became uh, full generals, and the fifth became Viceroy of India. It's not bad for Miller's son. Wow. And they, they could only do that because he, he went from, I think he started as a volunteer. And a volunteer back in those days was a, a young man attached to a battalion waiting for a vacancy. Basically, yeah. uh, basically private unpaid until a, vol until a vacancy came up. And then they, could, they were given a free incidency or a cornetcy, depending on what the regiment was. <clears throat> um, and that's how he started. And am I right in thinking the only qualification you would need for that would be to have like a letter of recommendation or something? So they wouldn't have necessarily had to have been particularly well educated or from particularly well-known families. They just had to maybe have had a contact who was who could write them a letter. Is that sort of how it works? I'm, I'm guessing so. The, the, the body of evidence about how volunteers worked is, I think, not well understood. Yeah. Um, the, they existed for a long time in a great number of campaigns, but it's it's kind of hard to find out about how the whole volunteer system works. And I, I suspect it works differently in every regiment. Uh, it was a bit of sort of, you know, make it up as you go along yeah. a lot of the time. Um, but a number of talented officers came into the service from, from volunteers. Um, so plainly there was some benefit in it. Yeah. Well, I guess my next question leading on from that is kind of the ages of battalion commanders. Did, did you find there was a lot of talented younger guys or was it generally kind of, you know, guys in their middle age and so forth? 
Yeah, I looked at uh, 20 campaigns um, between 1793 and 1815, and I looked at the total CO cohort for each of those campaigns and looked at their average ages, how long they'd been in the army, how long they'd been in command, uh, and it showed a couple of very interesting things, some of which were quite explainable by the time and the place that the campaign occurred and, and mitigating factors that influenced it. Um, but on the whole, an amazing consistency came out between the, the, the average age and the average uh, years of service of the officers. Um, your typical lieutenant colonel, uh, pretty much throughout the entire era, and I'm sorry, I'm just trying to look at some data here while we do this, no was about 37 to 38 years old. Um, <clears throat> typically with about 18 to 19 years of service in the army. Um, your typical brigadier, and I include brigadiers here because brigadier general back then wasn't a rank, it was an appointment that only lasted for the duration of the campaign and a lot of COs were plucked to be brigadiers for the, for the duration. So it was a fine line between, you know, where, where does a CO end and where does a brigadier start? Your average brigadier was about 42 years of age with about 25 years of experience. Um, <clears throat> compared to um, the counterparts, as I've said, the COs in that age range were about mm, 10 years younger than their counterparts in the Royal Artillery, were interestingly about the same age as COs in French regiments. I mean, there's a tendency to think that French, French regiments must have been, the COs must have been younger and more vigorous, but actually, no, they were yeah. about the same age. Um, and COs in Prussian regiments were older by a couple of years. And COs in Austrian regiments were a lot older. So not only did the British Army have one of the younger um, CO cohorts of any army in Europe, but they were also extremely experienced. I mean, if you're 38, you've been in the army for 19 years, it's pretty much all you know. Uh, and in 19 years, you'd have seen a lot of campaigns. Um, so the fact, you know, people who think that, you know, perhaps some of these officers were sort of puffed up guys who jumped in and purchased their way up and hadn't been around that long and they're commanding troops in battle with no experience, the figures do not bear that out, I yeah. have to say. I mean, I, I don't have these statistics in front of me, but just at a guess, I would say the average... The average age of a lieutenant colonel in the British Army now is probably late late thirties, early forties. Yes. I could be wrong there, but it, I, I would say that. Yeah, I, I, I looked it up. It's almost identical. Right, isn't that um, interesting? Yeah, and um, I also had a bit of a look at um, First World War statistics because what really started me on this whole project was reading Peter Hodgkinson's thesis on British battalion commanders in the First World War. You know, right. the army went from a very small army full of old contemptibles in August 1914 to this massive behemoth in November, you know, way more than a million men, you know, and where the hell did all the officers come from? You know, where did all the COs come from? It's a very, it's a very interesting essay. Um, and in, I think it was late 1917, Douglas Hay, Douglas Hay issued an order saying that no new CO shall be appointed over the age of 35. Really? Mm. Wow, that is interesting. Well, I'll have to try and find yeah. a, a link to that. Is that is that an essay that can be found online, or is that a published? Yes, book? yes. You can, uh, well, both. He, he turned it into a book, I think, and it also span off another book by William Westerman called Australian Battalion Commanders in the First World War, which covers similar kind of ground. Which again, I was very interested to read because, you know, the Australian Imperial Force was literally created from scratch in 1914. Um, the regular army stayed home and this whole new force, which had to be officered from the ground up. Uh, and I was very curious to see where these men came from as well. So that was, that, was the, that was kind of the spark that led to this whole project in a way. And I sort of thought, well, why is there nothing like that about the British army for the Napoleonic period? <clears throat> yeah. Um, and that's, you know, kind of the thing that, that allowed this project to take off a couple of years ago now, but um it took uh, a bit longer to write than I'd hoped because uh, with this little thing called COVID got in the way and I couldn't travel for research. But anyway. Yeah, well, glad, glad, glad you finally got there in the end. And I know you've still got, you know, lots of research to, to be cracking on with. But um, 
talking of sort of battalion commanders then during this era, what would what would the sort of day-to-day life on campaign have been like for a battalion commander? What were their main sort of responsibilities and duties day-to-day and then later on, you know, in combat? I mean, on campaign, it was, it, it was, there would have been a lot of tedium, boredom and going through the motions because, you know, uh, the Peninsular War, for example, started in, gosh, what was it? August 1808 and went to April uh, 1814. So it's, you know, six years almost. Um, and in some years, the army only fought a handful of battles. Yep. <laughs> so what were they doing the other 363 days of the year? Just going through the motions and managing the battalion on a daily basis with trying to, trying to deal with the day-to-day boredom and tedium that goes with it. Um, and this slide here shows all of the things that, by and large, the CO would have been responsible for, although the CO, yes, they were the person the buck stops with, but they would not be the person doing all of these things because the CO would have been able to delegate all of these to, you know, two majors, each one commanding half the battalion and also um, uh, commanding uh, the drill sessions and the inspections. The adjutant, uh, the young officer responsible for day-to-day administration, bookkeeping and all that kind of stuff. The sergeant major, who is the senior NCO of the battalion. Uh, The quartermaster responsible for stores and um, picking out uh, the stopping point for the next night and looking for accommodation and housing and um, making sure all the troops are fed and that sort of thing. Um, And the surgeon and who else have I missed? Anyway, uh, paymaster, yes, very important one. Paymaster, responsible for doling out the cash to the troops on payday. Um, So a lot of them would have been uh, responsible for this, and the good CO would have pushed a lot of this or delegated a lot of this down to particularly the adjutant and the two majors to make sure it happened. Uh, The adjutant would have been working in conjunction with the sergeant major. Uh, The majors would then have been working in association with their company commanders because there was 10 companies, therefore 10 company commanders, usually captains, uh, to make sure that all of these things get done. And, and, you know, for probably 16 hours a day, uh, we're just dealing with all of this uh, kind of day-to-day stuff um, before they could even think about, you know, picking up their muskets to go into action on the couple of days a year when there was actually battles on. Yeah. I always feel like they must have spent a lot of time writing letters as well, because you see these long letters that officers used to write. And I think, where did they find the time? They had lots of time for it. Uh, uh, a typical a typical day in camp uh, usually started at about daybreak, uh, which was, which in you know in summer in Spain might have been half past three or four o'clock in the morning, and the drummers would drum, and everyone would get up, and the men would uh, go and wash themselves. Um, they would then have breakfast, um, then they would have an inspection parade, uh, and then do some drill in the morning. Then they would um, break for lunch, which I think was probably the, the largest meal of the day. Um, then they would spend the afternoon doing more drill or um, picking out, let's say, for example, tradesmen within the ranks, the cobblers to fix the shoes, the tailors to fix the uniforms, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and then the evening meal, which I gather was a fairly light affair. Um, and then uh, they would all, you know, sit around the campfire and smoke, which was a very popular pastime. Um, and then lights out was kind of just after dusk, quite early. And then, you know, they're doing that day in, day out on campaign, sometimes for months at a time. <clears throat> so it was it was probably very boring, to be yeah. perfectly honest. <laughs> well, let's let's drill down then into those, you know, two or three days a year where they might actually have seen some serious combat. Generally, let's say you're lieutenant colonel in command of a battalion. Let's say maybe you've got five, six hundred men fit under your command in the battle. Would you have actually... Like what? What decision making would you have been allowed to? You know, what decisions could you have made? How much freedom would you have been given? You know, were they able to show sort of tactical nous, or was it very much kind of you know, top down, do this, do that, and they didn't really get to show show their own talents? A bit of both. Unlike um, perhaps uh, Hollywood esque 
um, notions of commanding on the battlefield. Uh, a certain film that's coming up that, that involves um, Napoleon drawing his sword and charging at the head of the cavalry, which actually never happened, I'm sure, once in his entire career. But anyway, let's not get into that. Um, <clears throat> this slide I, I particularly like because it shows two versions of the same action seen from two vantage points. Um, on the left, we have a British battalion, I think it's the 50th foot, uh, advancing downhill to meet a French column. They're in two deep line, which was the traditional way of, well, not traditional, but certainly the, the way that uh, Wellington chose to employ the army uh, in the peninsula. Um, each of the 10 companies are in a line. The commanding officer or captain commanding each company is on the right-hand end of the line at the front uh, with his covering sergeant with a pike immediately behind him. Um, somewhere close to the centre of the battalion, you've got the two ensigns, the two most junior ensigns carrying the colours, supported by six sergeants with a pike for the colour party. Forming a loose third line behind them, you have the other officers and sergeants uh, there mainly to push men back into the ranks uh, and to keep uh, to walk along behind them, shouting encouragement. And then in another line behind them, you have the drummers. Um, and also in that sort of fourth line, you also have the mounted officers. Only the lieutenant colonel, majors and adjutant were mounted, not every company officer in battle. Uh, the commanding officer was mounted at the rear of the colour party so he can get a sense of the what the entire battalion is doing. He has his two majors mounted as well and they are behind each of their wings so they are adding a kind of localised command and control. Um, as you can see, the CO is not at the front pulling it, waving his sword and charging at the enemy. That's not, that's not how they worked. Uh, command and control was everything and he needed to be able to see what was going on. And really the, the dressing of the ranks and the way companies conducted themselves was the domain of the majors commanding the wings and the captains commanding the companies. But the intention was that a battalion in line advancing maintained as tight a front and as straight a line as humanly possible. Uh, no gaps in the line. If a gap created, you'd have the officers and the sergeants in the third rank yelling, close up, close up. Uh, or if they're coming to um, grips with the enemy and the front rank may in fact kneel to, to, to fire and the rear rank remain standing. Of course, the sergeants and the officers will be walking up and down behind them saying, choose your targets, men. Aim carefully. <laughs> Don't get too excited. <laughs> You know, a bit like Colour Sergeant Bourne, you know, it was spot on. Um, <clears throat> you also notice on the left-hand picture that on, you can just see the 52nd Light Infantry filing into position under their CO on the right-hand side of the, of the 50th, preparatory to delivering a um, flank uh, attack on the French column. Uh, the 52nd seem to be quite good at that. I'm sure those who know about Waterloo will immediately recognise that tactic. Uh, and on the right-hand side of this image, of course, you can see the French uh, in their typical tactical arrangement of companies in three deep line, in column, so a gigantic mass of men. This is not the Imperial Guard. These were, in fact, converged grenadiers at a time when grenadiers and French armies still wore uh, bearskin hats. And you can see the sergeant major behind each company, but the company commander marching along in front of each company, which is a little bit different. Uh, this battle was the first use of shrapnel, and they can see you can probably see a couple of fellows on the right-hand side there who are enjoying the exposure to it, or not. Um, <clears throat> and uh, yeah, uh, you can tell that. Well, this is at a time when a number of French regiments uh, actually had white uniforms rather than blue, and the French in summer in the peninsula habitually wore their greatcoats and they kept their blue uniforms rolled up in their pack because the greatcoats were a lighter material and looser and therefore cooler. So uh, hence why they look like they look like there. But as you can see, the sort of um, the comparison of the two difficult sort of uh, tactical doctrines of the two armies. Um, so it's, it's all about command and control, not getting out of hand. Uh, and there are some instances where uh, regiments or battalions did get out of hand, not the least of which was the foot guards at um, Talavera, where they advanced too far, got cut up uh, and 
and the 23rd Light Dragoons at, at the same battle uh, sort of lost control. So maintaining control was was paramount on the battlefield, and that was probably the CO's major, other than motivating the men, probably his his major responsibility. And of yeah. course, so there would have been uh, where where he where he stood and what he did in terms of, um, you know, sort of uh, higher level tactics was as dictated to him by his brigadier. So he would have been standing on the battle. His, his battalion would have been standing on the battlefield where his brigadier told told him to stand, and the brigadier, of course, is receiving orders from the um, divisional commander, usually a major general, uh, about moving your brigade to the left or to the right. So the, the sort of chain of command thing was was ever present, but it, it is today as well, of course. Yeah. So there would have been very few opportunities for for sort of full autonomy for these guys to really show what they were capable of. Yeah, probably not a huge amount, um, but there are obviously celebrated examples. Um, and I did mention, you know, Colborne's flank attack on the 52nd at Waterloo, which, of course, is quite famous. Uh, but there's also, you know, Henry Harding at um, Albuera, who on his own volition rode to the rear and brought up the um, brought up a brigade uh, to plug a hole in the line. And I think he was only like a, I think he was a major or something at the time. He was, he was relatively junior. Um, but he completely off his own back advanced an entire brigade to plug a hole in the line, which turned out to be crucial. Um, so there were instances of it happening. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask a tough one now, a bit of fun, but I think let's roll with it. Mm. So a couple mm. of years ago, I had uh, Christopher Bryce on the show who wrote mm. a biography of Sir Hugh Goff. Now, mm. I always get the 87th and 88th mixed up, but I think he was the CO of the 87th. Yeah. And he made a, a strong case for Goff being the best battalion commander in the peninsula. From all your research, did anyone stand out to you as someone you'd say, yeah, he was the guy or, you know, maybe two or three guys who you thought, yeah, they really stood out from amongst their peers. Did anyone really stand out to you? Certainly, certainly Goff. And, and the interesting thing about Goff was he had a second battalion. He was for most of the peninsula or he was a major. He didn't become lieutenant colonel until I think the end of 1812. Um, so he was moderately junior, I guess, for a lot of it. Uh, certainly highly regarded by his by his men. Um, but I, in my book, I've, I look very much at the entire period from 1793 to 1815. So I'm not just looking at Peninsula; I'm also looking at yeah. you know, India regiments in India. I'm looking at regiments in. Uh, South America in 1807. I'm looking at regiments in Egypt in 1801. I'm looking at the regiments at Halder in 1799. You know, it's a, a much broader brush than that. Um, in terms of favourites, the guys that kind of, to me, kind of stand out uh, and the reasons, I think Dennis Pack was an outstanding soldier. Yeah. Um, Another Irishman, I believe, wasn't he? Yes, son of the Dean, son of a Dean from, from somewhere, Kilkenny, I think. Um, yeah, I mean, Robert Burnham in his book, Wellington Brigade Commanders, uh, cites the fact that he thinks Pack was the finest um, uh, regimental and, and brigade commander in the army. I, I would find it hard to argue with that. Robert Ross of the 20th was a particularly outstanding CO, uh, as was George Smith of the 20th and the 82nd, um, real fire eater. Uh, James Kempt, another fire eater. He... Uh, Always did very well. He was always being picked up by Wellington to do, you know, the tough jobs. Uh, I think in terms of the most beloved CO in Peninsula, I think that's probably Andrew Francis Barnard of the 95th Rifles, who was literally worshipped by his men. You've got real long-standing, long-in-the-tooth, highly experienced professionals, like Belson of the 28th, Blakeney of the Fusiliers, uh, Slay of the 11th. I think both Ponsonby's were, were great COs. Um, Frederick with the 12th Light Dragoons and William, of course, from the 5th Dragoon Guards, who took over from Le Marchand when he was killed at Salamanca commanding the Heavy Cavalry Brigade. He was, uh, I gather, an exceptional um, CO. And let's not forget Robert Ballard Long, who was an officer who you know, didn't really get on well with Wellington because um, he said what he thought and was, had a fairly caustic tongue, but he was he was a superb CO of the 15th Hussars for a number of years there. He really beat them into shape. They were one of the best regiments in the army. 
Um, there are probably others. Like, they're the sort of ones that spring to mind. There's probably others that I could come up with. So obviously you've listed some of the some of the officers you think did a really good job. Were there any you came across that were particularly bad? You know, I'm thinking using a sharp analogy like Henry Simerson, you know, someone who really yeah. embarrassed themselves. Well, it's interesting, you know, that <clears throat> in the early years of the war, if an officer didn't perform, he was kind of quietly shuffled out of, you know, given a staff job or the army was not good at really coming down like a ton of bricks on non-performers. There was this sort of softly, softly, slightly namby-pamby approach to it. Um, unlike the Royal Navy, and let's not forget the Royal Navy um, shot poor old Admiral Bing by firing squad, squad on the deck of his ship for not being aggressive enough in 1757. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was harsh. <laughs> oh, God. Um, and in the Royal Navy, the message was... Um, uh, if you're feeling aggressive, uh, well, no, it's not if you're feeling aggressive, you are feeling aggressive, <laughs> so just get on with it. Um, <clears throat> but in the army, you know, even the inspection reports in the early years of the war from the army, you know, regiments that are plainly, you know, not very good, you've got inspection reports written by inspecting generals that say lots of damned with faint praise kind of comments like, oh, the men march tolerably well. You know, the officers are dressed in a broadly acceptable fashion. Yes, like everything's kind of like a pull to punch. Fast forward to, well, particularly after 1809 and especially so after 1812, Wellington thought nothing of sacking COs on, on campaign. Uh, he sent three COs um, home in early 1813 because they just weren't good enough. The, the, there may be some mitigating circumstances with some of them, but he, I mean, it, it's it's not like he took them into his office and threw the book at them and sent them packing onto the horse and off they went. But he would, would write to the Duke of York saying, so-and-so is not up to scratch, please remove him. And then he'd let the Duke of York do the dirty work effectively. Well, I, I think we should probably start wrap, wrapping up now, Steve, but I just wanted from all your research, I'm guessing you read a lot of correspondence from these guys and so forth. Do they come across as quite a likable bunch? Like, do you come away from it thinking actually their their depiction, you know, especially in sort of modern films and TV shows, is perhaps unfair, and that these these seem like a pretty decent bunch of blokes? Well, there was a lot of them. I mean, I, I think I worked out that in the period I was looking at, there was something like four thousand field officers. Just trying to make broad generalizations is quite difficult, but I think on the whole, as a cohort they were extremely professional they were dedicated um and and like any group of people that's that big you got all sorts of characters um and trying to sort of paint them with one brush is, is extraordinarily difficult i think uh i think they were a different um cohort than the cohort that followed them after 1815 because the army changed quite a bit between 1815 and 1854. I think in the years after Waterloo, the army became less middle class, if that's the right term. Um, and I looked at all the regiments that landed in the Crimea in 1854 and where their COs came from. And I compared them with exactly the same regiments in 1815 and looked at their COs to see where they come from. And there was actually quite a shift in the army. Um, I mean, in, in 1815, of the, of the cohort that I looked at, less than 20% were the sons of officers. By 1854, nearly half were sons of officers. So the army had become very much a family concern. Um, the land, the, the um, representation of the landholding class officers had gone down from 40% to about a quarter uh, because, you know, in the Victorian era, I think heads of families were realising that the army as a career for their son was perhaps not as good a career choice as it had been, you know, before the Industrial Revolution, with industry and commerce going the way it was in the Victorian era, uh, there were far better career choices than becoming an officer, perhaps. Uh, sons of aristocracy went up, 
So there were more aristocrats um, in the army. Um, and I also had a look at, sorry, I'll just get the right slide here. I also had a look at um, the 33rd Foot, the Duke of Wellington's regiment, how it promoted its officers in 1815 versus how it promoted its officers in 1854. Um, and in 1815, about 40% of all officers within the 33rd had gained their current rank by purchase. By 1854, it was 85%. So most officers by Crimean War were purchasing their purchasing their commissions where back in you know the time of Waterloo it was somewhere between a third and a half. So it was a big change. Um, and the army became more exclusive, more focused on purchase, uh, less representation from the middle class. It was really officered by, you know, the dandies, <laughs> the sons of aristocrats, and particularly the sons from army families who had swelled enormously in number, uh, I, which I guess is understandable. You've got the generations following Waterloo, the sons wanting to emulate their fathers who had, who had done all those deeds between 1793 and 1815. So I guess, you know, that's kind of a natural reaction. Um, but that was, I thought that was quite an interesting analysis um, to see how yeah. the army had changed. And there were enormous uh, rewards um, to field officers um, after Waterloo, but unfortunately they rather focused on the period from 1808 to 1815 in officers who had served valiantly from 1793 to roughly 1808, really got very little. Uh, 100, uh, 178 governorships were awarded to former CEOs in the years after Waterloo. The, the CEOs provided King George IV and Queen Victoria with this massive cohort of men capable of um, fulfilling governor positions, men with an air of authority, men with a good understanding of how the government worked, men with a good understanding of how the army worked. They were ideal candidates to be governors and, and 178 governorships were given out. Um, so that was, that was a huge reward for them. Yeah. Um, so I guess going back to the original question, uh, were they a likable bunch? Um, yeah, I think so. I quite enjoyed being in their company for the last couple of years um there's some good ones there's some bad ones um i think and and the and perhaps never got a lot of press because a lot of the sort of airtime has been taken up by the peninsula and the, the waterloo officers but i think in terms of, of the quality of the men involved i think the ceos of the regiments in india deserve a lot of credit uh, they were a long way from home. It was very hard for them to sail home again. You know, if you're a CO in Portugal, it's it's a week to get home, basically. If you're in India, it was six months. And so COs didn't generally sail home from India, and the regiment served there for a long time. So the officer, officers, the NCOs, and the men of the regiments in India formed very close bonds. Um, and the COs in particular were fighting in hard conditions uh, with tenuous supply trains against an enemy that's not fighting in the European tradition and doing things in an unconventional manner, an often quite ruthless manner. Um, I think those men deserve a huge credit, certainly a lot more than they've, they've been, been been given in, in the press over the years. And, and they may just be perhaps... Um, the best cohort of COs in the British Army at that time. So thanks to Steve for that fascinating presentation. I learned a lot and I hope you did too. Don't forget to look up his books, including the new one, Fit to Command. Also, please subscribe and leave a review as it will be great if we can get this show to grow and to keep spreading these amazing stories from British military history. All right, guys, take care. I'll speak to you next week.